What's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming back Fan Thane from Title Gardens. What's going up? What's going on there, Fan? Not much. How are you guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. So uh, most of you, I'm sure, know Than. He is the founder and owner of Tidal Gardens, a coral reef aquaculture business located in Copley, Ohio. He is also an author and contributor to several reef keeping industry publications. Besides being a passionate entrepreneur, Than is a licensed attorney, has a master's in business administration and juris doctor from the University of Akron and a Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of Michigan. But before we start chatting with Dan, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, both Folk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. Appreciate the support. And I also appreciate all you folks out there tuning in. We see uh, a bunch of you in the chat. Please, uh, as always, hit that like button so we get more uh, people into this uh, live stream. Spread that word. And as always, encourage comments and questions in the chat so uh dan what's uh what's new and different there at uh, title gardens these days i i uh, i see you guys have a new uh podcast going there yeah but before we get to the podcast okay then, um going back to my little cv there that would be the national champions michigan wolverines oh there you go congrats yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i only they have lost, to wait they lost their coach though that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. You got the championship. Because <laughs> uh, when, when I was a, actually a student there, we went to the Rose Bowl in 1997 and won a partial national championship. So I had to wait like 20-something years <laughs> for another one. So I am I'm living it up on that while I can. Worth the, uh, the wait, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially living in Ohio. Yeah. So how many, uh, how many games do you get to go to in terms of uh, Michigan football games? Oh gosh, I like none. None, like none. <laughs> I haven't been in so long. Yeah. How, now, how far of a uh, road trip would that be for you? It's uh, it so Ann Arbor from here is about three hours ish. Oh, it's not bad. No, not too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I've never been to a big time uh, football game. I've um, always heard it's pretty much of a uh, a happening in terms of the tailgating and and what have you. So it sounds like a lot of fun. It, it really is. And uh, these days, to go to like one of the big games, it is very pricey. Oh, really? Like, what are you talking about in terms of a uh, ticket for, to a college football game? Uh, so, like, I think like, um, well, this is just just back in the day when I was like a student and stuff. But yeah. Ohio State Michigan game would scalp for like thousands, potentially. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Like that would pay for like your your books and for like a semester or two. Whoa! Yeah. Yikes. That's, uh, well, I, you know, I've, listen, I mean, I've heard in terms of what Super Bowl tickets are going for uh, these days, and I just can't uh, grasp, you know, spending that kind of dough. Um, so, you know, obviously, I think it's, it's a lot of corporations in terms of people that are showing up and, and knowing somebody to get into that game. Could be. And also, it's just like, what if your team loses? Like, that's a bummer on top of all that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you pay all that money, and then it's like, such a um the big big time uh, bummer but uh yeah is what it is yep so uh anyway. podcast uh podcast is a thing it's um that 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 set 
came together really quickly for me. Like uh, I, I started just to put it together, just got some some uh, kind of scrapbook ideas basically. And I would think that it, it, it was functional within a, like about a couple weeks. Nice. And I've slowly been tweaking it because uh, usually I just have like one person on. There's not like a lot of people that come and visit. But um, like later in the summer, I'm kind of expecting um, a few people and we're not able to have like four people on camera. There's not like four microphone inputs and all this stuff. So uh, that's one thing that hopefully by the end of this week I'll have settled. And so each person can actually be heard. Well, it's it's quite the impressive uh, set and and camera operation. I, I love how you could uh, just cut from uh, one one person to another. That's a very uh, high end there, Than. Oh, thanks. It's really cool. Like uh, we found a an AI podcast editing program, so it can kind of detect who's talking, and and the first round of edits is done by AI. So really? it'll actually, yeah, it'll bounce between the people. And you can tell it like how much of the wide angle with uh, with both guests um, that you want. So you can kind of like slide that over to a lot more wide angle versus the the individual faces and stuff. It's yeah. kind of neat. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, you're a very uh, you know tech savvy uh, type of person, so we would expect uh, nothing less there, man. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> so what's what's the what's the plan in terms of the podcast? What what uh, what are you uh, envisioning it to uh, to to kind of uh, evolve into? So it's it's literally the most underutilized podcasting set ever. Because really, what I wanted was just to have like a place where I could record those types of conversations. And uh, just to be different from a lot of the other um, people in the industry that, that have podcasts like yourself, like the guys um, that do Reef Beef and, and several others that are popping up that are just that I'm not even familiar with yet. Uh, I wanted to do like just mandated that everything has to be done in person. Yeah. Like like no no Skype calls or anything. Mm, that, Podcast is in person only. That's you unique. In front of me to do record one of those, mm. and so part of it was just uh, I wouldn't call it like a lure, but it's a little perk because having people come to Akron, Ohio, or Copley, Ohio, for anything else other than to come see me, it's a it's a tough <laughs> it's a tough sell. You know, yeah. it's like people fly in, possibly get a hotel. Uh, we do have a guest bedroom here, but not everybody wants to stay. You know, my farmhouse. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a costly endeavor and it takes a couple days. So having the um, a little bit extra that, oh, by the way, if you do come, we can record a podcast. Yeah. No. While you're visiting. That's but cool. It was, a lot of it, though, was just I wanted people to come, like industry folks, to actually come and see the coral farm. Yeah. No, that's a um, that's 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 reason enough to come, I would think. Um Couple of questions in the uh, in the chat, and and this is interesting. I see uh, Justin uh, Stanley is asking Than. So I, I've I've uh, talked about this on my um, my show and my my some of my videos on YouTube in terms of the problems I'm having shipping corals, you know, with the uh, with the next day air using UPS and um, big cost increases for me and and uh, reliability issues and just things like just popping up. The last couple of years that had never really happened to me. So Justin is asking, Than, are you having the same shipping issues that Keith is having? How are you 
overcoming the reliability and increased cost issues. So you guys, I'm assuming, would ship a ton more than I would. Have, has that been something that you have um, encountered in terms of any shipping woes, or has it kind of been business as usual for you guys? Mm, the price goes up a few percent, up to 5% a year. So that's definitely something to pay attention to. The cost of packaging materials also goes up every year. Um, I think a while back, we kind of made a commitment to not skimping on packing because it only takes a couple of DOA corals to where it doesn't make any sense to try to save money in that way. Yeah. So we kind of go way extra when it comes to packaging the stuff. So our packaging costs escalate quite dramatically. Um, I think though that by having fewer DOAs, it does it, it does kind of smooth things out. I mean, we still have DOAs. It's obviously it's winter in Ohio. That's not wonderful all the time to ship yeah. in. Uh, but we ship with UPS and it might be a regional thing. I don't know if it's a, a thing that I can really say across the board because I know that a lot of people ship with FedEx, happily with FedEx. But we struggle a lot with FedEx here. Like, for instance, uh, just getting deliveries here from FedEx gets squirrely. Mm. It's a different person delivering all the time. And they deliver to weird places on this property. Like, okay, so there's my house right at the street. You can deliver there. That makes sense. It's a house. That's the address. Yeah. There is a gigantic building with five cars in front of it. You could deliver to that. <laughs> But there's also like some barns and stuff. And sometimes there's, there's like a FedEx delivery at the corner of a barn on the ground. Mm. And that'll be like the laptop that I ordered <laughs> that might just get run over by one of those employee vehicles. And just no clue as to like when or where it's going to come. It's just so FedEx has been squirrely for us. On top of that, we just happen to have like a God tier UPS rep. Yeah. Awesome. Like whenever we whenever we have a problem, he is in front of us in person within like a couple hours. Wow. Yeah. Because uh, we ship out so much that apparently we pay for the entire route. <laughs> so you're you're getting so, some premium rates there. We do. Uh, so I've heard uh, of some so FedEx will always be cheaper, I think. So a lot of places like to go to, um, you know, shipping with FedEx because it is noticeably cheaper than UPS. But I, I personally can't justify like the, the service difference and like the, the peace of mind. I, and I'm sure that, that FedEx is a wonderful company and it all works out. But I, I don't want to side eye every shipment that goes out of here. <laughs> but I've seen some of the discount rates that some of my um, – my competitors in the industry are getting from FedEx and it's like, boy, that's attractive. That's really attractive. <laughs> yeah. Cause we spend a lot with UPS. I I've had the kind of similar experience with FedEx. I just don't trust them. And I use a uh, UPS, um, similar story with FedEx, just uh residential, uh, thing. They, um, delivered down our street. They, they, they dropped off a bunch of packages in the middle of our neighbor's driveway and, and 
one of those packages was was for my, myself and another package was for another neighbor but they just abandoned the packages in the middle of the driveway quite odd <laughs> but we I, i'm sure we could spend the entire uh, show here talking about shipping you know uh, nightmares and bizarre happenings yeah and i guess like uh, if the, the, the really the only way to not control costs is that it gets easier if you ship out a ton of stuff right so you just kind of have to like bury your woes in volume and if you do that you get more and more and more attractive rate to the point where it, it doesn't become like depression inducing right but it is it is a an enormous bill um and i think that if that trend continues it's going to be a pretty difficult barrier for smaller um lower volume like sellers to to have to deal with because that that's uh, to, to ship a, a box to California, even if you have good discounts, might be a hundred dollars. Yeah, no, I'm I'm um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop shipping online because it's just gotten crazy. I mean, yeah, I just uh, I shipped some stuff today, um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I did a shipment to, to California and it was 120 bucks for a box, and that's just for the, you know, the the shipping cost. It doesn't include the box costs and the heat pack and the bags <laughs> and all that sort of thing, and um, and then, you know, just the claim process for me has is, is gotten, like, ridiculous. So, um, but, yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think the smaller operations are going to really feel the pinch a lot more than the operations like yourself where you're doing a lot of volume, you're saving money on that service, and you've got, um, I see Amanda Meckley's in the chat here, a good UPS rep makes a big difference, yes. Um, that is for sure. I used to have a good one. but I used to have a good FedEx rep, and uh, she got promoted. Cause she was good. And then the, the replacement was not as good. And I switched to UPS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I think, um, it pays to, uh, to hop around. So I'm assuming you're using a third party rep for UPS. No, no. direct. Wow. No, no. So, like uh, I've got like a direct account with UPS. So yeah. Wow. So my rep is like, yeah, official. You, you got a direct connection then. That's pretty, uh, yeah. that's pretty awesome. Rob up New York. Thanks man for, uh, for that super chat. Keep reefing folks. Um, awesome. So, all right. Spe speaking of, um, shipping, one of my, um, first questions I wanted to ask you, um, then was the, uh, besides the other ones I just asked you are, are, is, is about, uh, shipping shipments of international coral. So, um, you know, how much do you guys rely on <clears throat> bringing in corals from importers like, uh, from, from Indonesia, and I'm asking about Indonesia because there's a pending ban on coral imports from Indonesia. Do you guys bring in any um, any stuff? So we don't import directly at all. Okay. Uh, at one time, we had an import license. We literally never used it once. Um, have never placed an, an order with anyone overseas in that way. We do work with wholesalers. Actually, ACI we've purchased a couple of times from. Uh, so we're not... We're not uh, completely disconnected from at least that, that wholesale connection. Um, but we don't buy a lot of corals, period. So, I mean, we're, we're I think, lower volume than people might think. We do really good volume, but we are lower volume than um, like a really big retail place or a small wholesaler. Um, so... I guess like our acquisition model is to find really good stuff that we like and try to grow it forever. And gotcha. obviously we can't do that for things like trachees 
and like homophilia, um, Australis, like, you know, like the Scolies and stuff like that. The stuff yeah. that just doesn't really propagate that well. Um, so, hmm, how much do we rely on that? Less than just about everybody at this scale, I would say. Um, I, I actually just had a, a guest over and he used to work at Top Shelf. Mm. And it just just for fun, we went to a, a wholesaler that was fairly close. And, you know, I bought some corals. We brought it back. And he was just like, wait, that's all you got? It was like one box of corals. Because he was like, at Top Shelf, we would get like 17 boxes. And we get that like every week. And I'm like, yeah, this one box of coral, that's going to be me for about two months. <laughs> we just don't. We're like the worst wholesale customer. Like, but... Um, so, so me personally, like Title Gardens, uh, as an operation, uh, we are pretty darn resistant to any potential ban in Indo. By the way, like Title Gardens, uh, we started our building, our, our new building, the new facility, uh, before the original Indo ban in like 2018. Mm -hmm. There was like a, that three-year ban of Indo. Yeah. And then Indo opened back up and our business model had never changed at any time. We were completely not impacted by that. So if Indo does get shut down to a larger degree this time, I don't know how much I would care. Right. So you say you're, you're, uh, you're leaning heavily on propagation, you know, for yeah. the, for the stuff that you can propagate. What about, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, you know, talk and people that are spawning corals. Right. Is, is that something that you have ever given thought to in terms of potential? A lot, actually. Yeah. But it's 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 just thought right now. Um, I think it's super cool. I think that is uh, easy. Like the first I heard of it was, you know, through Jamie Craggs and, yeah. and his yeah. research with Acropora. And that to me was literally the most interesting and groundbreaking news I had heard in 30 years of being like a hobbyist and coral farmer. Like that was phenomenal. But that kind of like raises the question of like, okay, that is, that is amazing at the research and hobbyist level. What does that mean as on like a business level? Right. And right. that is a, is a much murkier question. And so I applaud all the companies that are really uh, able to put a lot of capital and resources towards that question because um, it might not make financial sense until it does. Right. And so a lot of the a lot of the, the early movers on this are doing a lot of a lot of groundwork to to, to see. But for as far as like am I interested in? I'm super interested in it, but. Um, I don't know enough about it and I don't know how much bandwidth that would take up for, for us. Like our attention span is, it's pretty topped out right now. So I would almost need to bring in somebody that just does that. Right. And then you're talking about space in your facility, facilities mm -hmm. to, um, to potentially spawn corals. So it's going to take, dark up, rooms. what's that? Like they need specialized dark rooms and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, obviously it would, it would, it would have to be some sort of investment. And I guess, uh, like you said, it's, uh, kind of tough to kind of see what, uh, that initial investment would have to be and what it would yeah. co continue to be. Well, cause for example, I know that ACI is doing some, some work with, um, with acanthophilia and stuff like that. And that's like a, that's like a great 
thing to try to do because that's obviously something that you can't really propagate very easily. Um, but I wonder just like how long it takes for like a new, um, as we can say, like a sprout or a seedling. <laughs> Not <laughs> terminology, but um, embryo is that what you would call it? Sure, let's go with that. <laughs> a coral spawn, right? <laughs> to get to a a marketable size, I don't know if if, if we're talking like two, three years, four years, a lot can happen to a coral in four years. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a now an enormous risk. So yeah, the, these are these are all wonderful questions. I think that um, the the industry will get there, but um, yeah, I, I'm optimistic. What about the uh, the academic part or or the scientific community? You know how um, <clears throat> how important is it for the uh, for the hobby segment to be um, you know, kind of in sync with the scientific community. You know, it, it, it kind of seems like there's there hasn't been a lot of close collaboration in that sense. It's I, I guess it's going on, but is that something that um, you know you're um, potentially would like to see more of? Or I, it, it's kind of hard to say. I guess it's it's I, I think a lot of it, you know, is hobby level stuff is potentially helping to inform uh, what scientists are trying to learn and and vice yeah. versa. But I have a couple of thoughts on that. So typically when you see like a, a research lab at like a public institution or, or whatever, and you compare it to a home hobbyist tank, the home hobbyist tank is light years ahead technologically. Mm. Like research budgets and, and a, a lot of the, so it, you it's surprising how little crossover there is between these communities. So like public aquaria folks, don't often know anything about hobbyist aquaria folks like that sort right. of thing there's like a pretty hard barrier there um their 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 focus is different and um even though they have access to like tremendous resources when you actually look at a lot of the stuff that they tend to work with it's it's really rudimentary compared to just a standard hobbyist so on one hand and especially like a university they're i mean they're working with like air stones I mean, it's like really, yeah. Hmm. Uh, it, it's really, really, really primitive, and most most of the time, I mean, you'd be you'd be stunned. But that, that, that's what the literature says. Like the literature says, you know, just bubble this stuff up in with hmm. an air stone. Hmm. And so that's what they're kind of going off of. Uh, so you don't see like super high tech like labs typically. Um, but on the other hand, there's just stuff that that the professional research institutions, they, they know that hobbyists and stuff like that typically don't. So for example, um, uh, so Jamie, Jamie Craggs, so I, was, I, was, I try to talk to him just every now and again. And one of the things that he um, was working on was a way to kind of uh, work with the light cycles so that he doesn't have to get up at midnight to go collect like sperm and egg and all that stuff. And to have it like, you know, do it during work hours, that would be nice, mm, right? Yeah. But in his research with uh, with other, you know, folks that have been doing a lot of like spawning type stuff with like fish and all this, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to like mess around with all that stuff. You just hit it with this hormone. They breed it instantly. Mm. Like that, that's well. The, so the folks that, that that really do a lot of commercial spawning and like fisheries and stuff like that, no, 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 we don't. Don't no, worry that, about that. 1970s stuff you're talking about. Hmm. Just, you just figure out the hormone, do the hormone thing. They'll breed right there in five minutes. Hmm. 
So it's it's stuff like that that yeah. that hobbyists usually aren't going to just bump into. Right. Yeah. No. <clears throat> I see Greg Carroll's asking, do we really need dark rooms? Multiple hobbyists have, have had um, coral spawning events in their aquariums, but I guess um, you know, to your point, is is that. Um, if, if I guess the tank is exposed to any kind of light outside, then the corals or, or the um, right, then, then that's going to kind of mess things up, I would imagine, in terms of the lunar cycles and time of day. I don't know. It's Perhaps asking the wrong guy there. I mean, I, I've had spawning in my tanks, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Right. I guess you got to catch everything and, and uh, have things all set up to get rock and roll on that stuff. So. It's a, um, it's pretty involved from what I can understand and see. So, but yeah, I know, uh, I know the Meckleys have had, uh, some initial, uh, success and congrats to them. Pretty, uh, pretty awesome. That's, that's not an easy, it, it seems like the, most of the, um, um, spawning that's going on right now is with Agrabora. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, Minshew, emulating and simulating moon phase is not my cup of tea. <laughs> Supposedly that's easy. Oh, that's yeah. just a light cycle. You can just get. Yeah. So, all right, let's uh, let's switch gears here, Than uh, the, um, the last time I had you on, we were talking about an ozone experiment that you were doing. How? How has that um, gone? Are you, a, are you a convert in terms of the use of ozone? Have you seen some positive um, results with that? Is that something you're going to continue to do? I like it a lot. Um, so we are using uh, like the, basically the smallest hobbyist unit on an extremely large system. So we're using those Poseidon 200s by Ozotech. And we have the little dryer thing that, that kind of like helps with the humidity that's in the room. And initially, we were running ozone into um, a reef octopus skimmer. And after meeting with Raj at MRC, he was like saying, yeah, you know, that skimmer is really undersized for your system. And it's, it's completely true because those skimmers are sized for about a thousand gallons. We were using them primarily in the greenhouse, and we're just comfortable with them. And early on, I knew that our stocking levels, even though those systems are like 2,500 gallons that, that they're going on, the stocking levels are so low that I figured we, we'll just get these for now and just run with that. But we are at the point where they aren't able to keep up. And so by running ozone in those things, the, the contact time just wasn't there. And so we would get like residual ozone and stuff like that. And even that isn't the end of the world because, you know, our, our place is like so well ventilated and stuff like that. But you could kind of smell it. We have like the safety things to detect dangerous levels of ozone for like OSHA reasons and stuff. Yeah. But it, it never got beyond like one bar of, of ozone. Like it was always safe, like to, to several degrees. But... You could kind of smell it every now and again. Once we switched over to like the, the bigger MRC skimmers that are appropriately sized, they're, they're sized up to like 4,000 gallons. Mm. Uh, all of that ozone has the contact time needed to basically fully react in that column. Uh -huh. And so there's like no traces anymore, like just uh, from smell or anything like that. And it just does such a good job of keeping the water like crystal clear and the skimmate basically odorless so mm. if, if you walked into my place 
you I mean, the first thing that you would probably notice is that, A, it doesn't sound like anything. It's really quiet. But it also doesn't smell like anything either, which is kind of neat. Interesting. So in, in terms of the water clarity, what, what are the, uh, the benefits that you're seeing there? You're, you're, you're able to get, um, you know, better light penetration, I'm assuming, from, from the stuff that you're using, you know, over the tanks. But um, what else are you seeing in terms of the benefits besides water clarity? Anything so else? I- I just like that as a as an aesthetic yeah. perk because uh, if you've never really seen a tank with ozone before, um, it almost looks fake. Like the mm-hmm. way that the top uh, the top of the water it like sparkles. It sparkles as if there's like a weird sparkle filter that you're like looking at a tank with, and it's just yeah, it's like this really uncanny look. And like depth penetration lengthwise down a tank is very, very different. So our a lot of our tanks are 10 feet long. Mm. And you can look from one end to the other and, and see every little bit of coralline that's sitting on the other end of that glass. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what was I going to ask you in, in terms of um, the, uh, the ozone? The um, the one thing that um, you know some people do for water clarity is like a do-it-yourself coral snow treatment. But did you guys at all play around with that before you started with ozone? So I have never done that treatment before, and I'm really interested in trying it someday. Uh, mainly because like we have like the occasional vermitted snail, and that is also one of the treatments for vermitted snails. That's yeah. that people people say. And I think that uh, it, it's it's certainly worth trying. For, for us, the water clarity issue is more or less taken care of. But if it's another tool that helps for vermitids, uh, I'm all game because it's I look at vermitids like how you treat like hair loss. It's like one one type of treatment is pretty good. Two types of treatment together <laughs> works really well. Three type, types of treatment together works really, 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 really well. So it's like complementary. And so for vermitids, it's like we are lowering the amount of particulate feeding that we do. We are actively physically removing as many as we can. We have like some predators in there for vermitids. Bumblebees. Things like bumblebees, things of that sort. Certain wrasses even and certain yeah. like uh, – Butterfly fish can can help, but just like stacking these solutions tend to help. And if that is another thing we can stack on, onto that list, um, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in trying it. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> I've played around with it a little bit, and uh, you know I've certainly seen the increase in the water clarity, and, and I've got the same you know issue in terms of the vermitids. You know you're, you're, that that uh, you I don't know anybody that doesn't have those things. They just somehow find their way into every tank. It seems like. And yeah, they're really good at surviving. Yeah, they really are. They'll they'll just uh, come in, and you can't really tell what they're coming in on. And and um, anyway, it's um, yeah. I I think it 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 sounds like from the anecdotal evidence that I've heard is like it, it can slow them down. Yeah, I think the the mechanism is that uh, it kind of takes up space in their mucus web, and as they ingest it. It's just uh, it's kind of just making them use energy and they kind of starve out because they can't they can't uh, get any nutrients because so much of it is bound up. Um, they, they are they're grabbing so much of that cloudy um, calcium. 
what is that carbon, stuff? Calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So you mentioned in terms of ozone and you've got 10 foot long tanks and you can see all the way clear across these tanks very easily and whatnot. You know, I always um, admire your, uh, your your tanks and your videos, uh, Than, because, you know, whether it's a display tank, frag tank, what have you, propagation, they always look so clean. What's the uh, what's the secret there in terms of uh, keeping those things, uh, you know, nice and algae uh, free? So there's a good amount of elbow grease that goes into it, right? Like a good amount of elbow grease. Uh, so as far as like just keeping the glass clean, I don't think there's any real mystery there. You're probably going to have to be, you know, running a magnet across that every couple of days. Yeah. Um, but kind of like keeping an eye on where detritus settles and periodically getting in there and just siphoning like detritus piles really helps a lot. Yeah. Um, I like to try to get a tank nearly unsustainably clean, like just to push that 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 boundary. So we rely on um, on cleanup crew quite a bit with like snails and with fish and whatnot. Uh, you can pick out your favorites, right? There's there's plenty to choose from, and they and they all help. Uh, the most helpful one, believe it or not, is considered a pest by many. It is by far the best cleaner. <laughs> and that would be like Asterina starfish. Ah. Phenomenally good. Really? Like, it, it, so I understand why people don't like Asterina starfish. I also think that that is a really oddly um, specific reason to not like them. So, for example... Uh, so this 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 is my little Astrean starfish tirade, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> People have no problem with spending thirty dollars on a tuxedo urchin. I'm one of those guys, right? This thing grabs stuff, carries it around all your your tank. It is like a, a fist on the, on your front glass occasionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it if you have an acrylic tank, it will permanently etch whatever surface that it comes into contact that's with. not good oh yeah because it because it can it can chew like all the way down to like bare rock and in your and your acrylic surface is much softer than yeah. that so they can permanently do damage to your aquarium um yeah they're expensive and they, they like to die also so after you get done purchasing enough uh they mess stuff up and then they die it's great yeah and in, in comparison, like you, you have like these starfish, they self-replicate. If you siphon up a whole bunch of them occasionally, it doesn't really matter. They'll grow more. Um, during the day, they don't like the light, so they all go and hide. So they're usually not even on your glass that much to, to block anything. Um, and occasionally, a certain species of it will eat coral. And you can literally pick those off by hand and you're done. Like it's it's that easy to uh, to fix that issue, and if you really 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 regret it and hate it, you're one thirty dollars shrimp away from yeah. having none. Right. In a week. Right. Like it's gone. Right. So you have like the, you always have access to the reset button. Right. Um, and in that time, those starfish will clean so well that it's it's mind boggling how good they are. I never even thought of that. <clears throat> you know, I, I always just try to like avoid ever having those things. I'm, you know, I all, over the years, every now and then they'll they'll end up into the tank, but um, you know, it's uh, it's something that I always was like, you know, all right, tweezer time, 
or uh, going out and just pick out all the uh, Astronia starfish and get rid of them. And the, the the truth of the matter is, we actually don't have very many of them. Oh yeah. And we but we have one tank that we just let them go crazy, and I am so mad that like my customer base considers them a pest therefore we can't use them fact like uh, facility wide because they would save so much labor hmm. they it would save on on um on our like cleanup crew costs like we wouldn't have to bring in um snails and stuff because they're they're actually better than every other type of thing at cleaning exactly what we want cleaned Interesting. They're better than Astrinas. They're better than Trocuses. They're better than Mexican Turbos. They're so good. They don't touch uh, hair algae, though, do they? Uh, I think that once once you let them go, they they clean everything so well that you can physically remove the hair algae and it basically won't come back. Wow, interesting. So yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll handle the root problem. Gotcha. Uh, refresh our memory in terms of like your basic type of nutrient control in terms of what you do, protein skimming. You know, mm -hmm. what else? We do protein skimming, water change, and in that water change process, we're really trying to remove detritus and stuff like that to try to, to just to keep things cleaner. Uh, filter socks. Uh, I've, I've become like a, a recent convert to, to the filter sock game. Uh, yes, it is kind of labor intensive to keep them clean. Yep. We've noticed like a lot of real nice benefits to having them. No, uh, no use of macroalgae? No, because um, this is where I think that we diverge a little bit from from some other farms and whatnot and, and some hobbyists. Like, I don't like refugiums because um, when when we're trying to get rid of like pests and things like that, the refugium is the place where stuff is going to persist and just hang out and be just like some place that we just can't address these things. So... Um, our systems are a lot more like laboratory sterile-like than they are a functioning home aquarium. And there are some drawbacks to that because like I was talking about before about how we're kind of pushing that line to like the unsustainably clean. Yeah. Um, we, grow every, we, we grow everything on plugs and those plugs go onto like these really nice like custom acrylic trays. And every now and again, we will swap out a tray for a new tray, and that one gets soaked in acid, and everything looks great because it's all on these new trays. Brand spanking new trays grow algae. Yeah, they just do. It's a, it's a, it is a completely like uh, clean surface that has no competition, and the first thing that's yeah. going to take root is undesirable algae. So we kind of like push that line to always have sort of mostly clean looking stuff. Um, but it's always kind of like inviting that type of like problematic looking algae. Well, you know, the good thing about what you're talking about, <clears throat> and, and I found this true myself, is that if, um, if you have a lot of algae in the system, whether it's bubble algae or cyano or um, hair algae or what have you, and you're not manually removing that, that's going to screw you up because then you're going to kind of get all the, uh, not only is it unsightly and it, and it just potentially could be uh, bothersome to the uh, critters in the tank, but um, you know, it's going to kind of mess you up in terms of your uh, tested nutrient levels. So, you know, you could be uh, testing out at zero nitrates and zero phosphates. If you have a lot of algae in the tank that you're not um, dealing with because all the algae is just taking in all those nutrients. 
And then you kind of get into that, uh, you kind of, you could potentially get suckered into like, oh, well, I got to dose more nitrates and phosphates because the levels are zero. But, you know, how much is being consumed by the algae already in the tank? And if you have a clean system, then you, I think, I believe you get more of a true reading of what's going on. Yeah, I, when we were starting up our latest system, our latest 2,500 gallon system, we would have like zero nitrate, zero phosphate, and the thing is covered in like gross algae. Right. And ironically, the thing that got us over that, that huge algae bloom was just to take all of the coral excess from the other systems. Uh, and we, and we try to do like dipping and stuff like that between systems just to like, you know, just to see if there's anything actually on them and whatever, go ahead dip all the new things or even like do fresh cuts to do a good dipping. But we started just to fill it up with coral. And uh, to just having that additional bio load, yeah. uh, and just that that biodiversity was that was probably the most impactful thing to just to get over that algae issue. Right. Just tons of coral because the corals are are uh, competing with the algae for the um, nitrates and the phosphates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears again here, Than, and talk about um, new products out in the marketplace that are intriguing to you. Have um, have you tried anything new lately, or is there anything that's been catching your eye out there? <sighs> um, not necessarily new. So th I think this is where um, I've become a little unrelatable. <laughs> <laughs> but the stuff that excites me is um, kind of getting away from a lot of like hobbyist grade stuff and more into like industrial or professional grade stuff. And the difference there is the feature set almost goes down. Mm. Like a lot of like the glitzy things that you can do um, with a kind of like a prosumer hobby grade pump, for example, or a light, uh, you lose all that stuff. But what you gain is in a difference-making level of robustness. And that's really what I'm all about now because the amount of time that we have to spend uh, like maintaining like hobby-grade stuff was mm. getting excessive. And even though, for example, like I, I've, I've talked about this, this pump brand a lot on my channel, but Abyss, shockingly expensive German yeah. DC pump, right? But the and, and if you were like a home hobbyist, it's it's gonna be like this is a this is a great pump, but is it that much better than like a CHA, you know, that sort of thing, right? But when you span that across an entire facility, uh, that that extra level mm -hmm. of just bulletproof butt kicking reliability starts to make a difference uh, when it comes to like maintenance times and just not having issues. And so you can focus on other things other than, um, you know, dealing with broken down pumps. Right. Like they just simply, in my opinion, knock on wood, they don't fail. And that's that's kind of valuable. So the stuff that, that I am most excited about tends to be just like mission critical, bulletproof, unsexy, get the job done and keep getting the job done sort of stuff. Is there anything out there in, in that vein in terms of industrial uh, level types of um, products that are not available in that sort of, um, you know, uh, 
alkalinity monitors, um, that sort of. So I haven't messed with a single of the auto testers that I like. So, I mean, not to throw anybody else under the bus, but I think I basically tried them all except for like two. Uh, I think they are they they have to be made at a certain price point to be accessible for the hobby. Even if that if the price point is like low four figures, that's still a price point that they have to to limbo under. Yeah. And I think that because they have to do that, uh, it is just it, it it works, but it doesn't work well for me at scale. So if we have if if our numbers aren't rock solid reliable, they're not worth collecting to begin with. And we were constantly dealing with error codes on all of these different auto testers. At one time, I wanted to set up three different auto testers, report to the same device, so that I would see all three numbers and blah, blah, blah. It never even materialized. Like, we just couldn't be bothered because one of them threw up an error code and we didn't even touch it for six months. <laughs> we just didn't even bother resetting the device. Like, who cares? Can't, can't trust it. Yeah, no, I recall you. You really don't lean on the uh, the alkalinity testers. No, we we we. I think we have a couple new in box still. We didn't even get. They didn't even make it out of the box because uh, we were just not going to realistically mess with it. However, however, there is an argument, and the only reason I haven't bought it yet is just because I haven't seen it in person. But that German company, Hach, it's H A C H. Yeah. I don't know how to yeah. pronounce that. But they make uh, professional titrators, like automated titrators. And I know, for example, like Shed Aquarium uses it. Mm. And I'm like, I just want to come over and get a behind the scenes tour and I'm going to sit in front of that thing and just watch it. Because the cool thing about that is it standardizes the, the technique of the titration. And so it's not like, oh, well, we have a guy that likes to do all the tests and so it's always him that does it so at least i know that my numbers are consistent yeah but if anybody else does that test and compare it to our standard numbers it could be off just by like that human difference right, right? well an automated tester by that that's you know made to professional standards it's it's kind of like a more of a one one touch thing and it just does it exactly so anybody theoretically could do that test Problem is that tester is like six thousand dollars plus the reagent. Mm, yeah, a little pricey. So how important is it to me, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what what are you guys? Uh, you're manually testing alkalinity. Uh, how often? Uh, two, three times a week, two. and then we send out an ICP like every month or so. Every month, and and what are you guys doing in terms of the uh, what are you, what are you doing with the ICP test uh, results? Are you doing uh, tr trace element dosing, adjusting based on those kind of results, or no? Uh, kind of. So um, I, I never wanted to be in a situation where I'm like chasing down like really specific numbers because ICPs tend to be incredibly finicky. I mean, that is a, a very um, technician skill dependent thing. Um, I don't know if you can hear them by that background, but my cat is like going. That's quite all right, Then We've had cats uh, oh. that have been um, guests as well on the show. So. <laughs> All right, she's being. <laughs> she, she's she's trying to get your attention. She is. Yeah. Um, trace elements. So I, I didn't want to be slavishly adhering to like certain numbers for trace. Like my only goal with trace elements is to get those numbers off of zero, as much as I could. Yeah. 
and just not above like that that upper range. So uh, as long as we're not bottomed out on certain on certain figures, I'd be happy. What what are you guys using for trace element dosing? Um, we use Captivate Aquaculture. So do I. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fine. Um, we we just bought a bunch of different ones, and then we and we we tweak a little bit. But again, like the goal isn't to be like we need to hit these exact exact numbers, like it's um, uh, like moonshiners or anything like that. It's like we're not that serious. We just wanted to be like, we wanted to avoid a colony collapse level of bottomed out something or the other. And especially when it comes to like the heavy metal type stuff, like the nickel and cobalt, it's like we want to be extra conservative on that. So I don't mind being super low as long as it's not zero. Right. Yep. I hear you. Um, in terms of stuff that you have tried recently, has there been anything in terms of methods that you guys have been utilizing that um, did not work out so have you made any changes in terms of the way you reef at tidal gardens and then decided to kind of um, reverse course on that or have you made changes for the better and uh, haven't looked back gosh i should have thought a little bit longer about that question <laughs> uh, so the obvious one was the uh, like how automated do you want stuff <clears throat> Right. So um, the automation thing, I, I, had, I did have grand designs of automation before I really jumped into it and really experienced automation. And it is kind of just didn't work out. So I think that automation would work out really, really, really well for a home hobbyist that can kind of like dote on their tanks. But when you have eight systems, it becomes like a full-time job just to kind of babysit the automation. Whereas the original plan was that the automation would free up all this time. So instead of doing testing, for example, you could be analyzing test results. Yeah. But that's not what happened. It's you're babysitting these devices. They're producing unreliable results that you don't trust anyway. And the whole thing is just a waste of time and money across like a lot of systems. So that didn't quite work out for us. Just And you know what? There might be another farm out there that's working great for it because they can actually put the attention towards it. We can't. Um, another thing is like whenever I'm trying to like plan out a facility and a workflow, you can only – so I always – call this like a second order problem it's like i think that people use it in like game development sort of thing where you're like you're trying to like make a game and we'll see how the people uh, interact with it sort of thing and that's kind of how i am with like my employees it's like i'm trying to make their job easier but let's see if i do x y and z if it will actually make it easier or is it something that they'll just like continue to ignore <laughs> so one thing was um, this latest system of aquariums was actually designed to be shipping focused so not farming at all hmm. and the corals would make their way into that uh, into that large system specifically because it's close to a brand new packing station that is like way nicer way bigger has like more of the bag staplers and everything and those bag staplers are like two grand a piece and everything it's Not like cheap. a big investment right yeah uh none of that worked out like no. those systems are not used for um like being a representation of our website of stuff for sale 
the guys are still running all, all over the place to go get frags. Um, those bag staplers are never used. I'm like the only one that ever uses it. Really? I love those yeah. things. Oh, oh, no, no. Well, we have others. Oh, okay. They use the ones like over in the greenhouse like a lot. Oh, okay. And there's these two that like never get used in this immaculate you know, quartz topped <laughs> packing station that's 40 feet long. It's like space space to like spread out and stuff. Nope. Doesn't get used. <laughs> so some things just don't work out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be tough to, uh, you know, try to design and then execute on that design and, and have everybody, um, you know, get the workflow all down. It's, it's a lot of logistics involved there, Finn. Yeah. What did work out so far? is the podcast studio it's really nice i that is probably the nicest set i've seen <laughs> it's really nice and it's actually in my office so i can just like look at it <laughs> it's very pleasant i got a question for you is that background live i mean being like living it is not living no uh, we so i don't have a green thumb at all like right now i'm uh killing unkillable plants Ooh. yeah like snake plants are dying. <laughs> so no, the, the the green wall is is not. It's plastic. Okay. Well, it looks pretty uh, realistic to me. Um, it's pretty good. What else do I want to ask you? So, um, Peninsula Show Tank. I don't think we've seen an update on that uh, recently. How how is that tank doing? I know it's had its uh, ups and downs, right? Uh, it's a it's a um. An exercise in neglect. Oh no! And but it's it's actually spectacular looking right now. Oh, awesome! Uh, it's full of like a, a mishmash of a lot of um, a lot of LPS and soft coral and stuff. Uh, there's like there is a a chalice in there that's every bit of like two feet across. I think. I mean, it's really? like big stuff in there. What's funny though is that so again we uh, our show tanks get super neglected like we don't pay a lot of attention to these things at all it's so they're not well, they're not really working tanks in the sense that you're growing corals in there to help propagate no supply. no okay no not no. at all okay so so what what to put that in perspective we have like a gold colored hammer that's a branching hammer in in our quote-unquote like euphilia slash fimbriophilia show tank and it fell over and 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 broke and so my dad uh, trimmed it up, and I think we got like 60 heads out of it. Ooh. And a piece that's still showpiece size that we can like currently like grow, and it still looks <clears throat> kind of nice. So like the, the colonies themselves are just enormous. So every now and again, we can go get frags, but the farm itself does produce enough by yeah. itself. But every now and again, it's like, well, didn't realize that there's hundreds of heads of this hammer. And that's kind of what's going on in the Peninsula Show Tank. Uh, if you guys were on on the stream earlier, when I was going off about my Astrina starfish thing, there's Astrina starfish in there. And early when I first saw the first one, I'm like, we should take care of that. <laughs> but then it's like, but I don't care about this tank. <laughs> and so Man, it's a like, beautiful tank. You, you got to care a little bit about that tank. Turned and walked away. <laughs> and those Astrina starfish, uh, we do no maintenance on this tank other than wipe the glass once or twice a week. Nothing else. No water no, changes? 
Uh, it's connected to the sump, so okay. it, like it, it gets water changes as like everything else really gets maintained. Yeah. But me getting in there and siphoning once a year at best wow. doesn't really happen. Uh, that tank is spotless, absolutely because spotless. Because of the Astronia starfish. Oh yeah, it, it, it's they have done a better job than all the dedicated cleanup crews and the staff and myself. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm like. It, it it pains me that the, the hobby doesn't like Astrina starfish because as a as like a as a facility, it's like that is the best best workers ever. <laughs> well, you know, I, like I said before, that that is news to me because I always just thought they were a, a nuisance uh, pest, but I had no idea that they could be your uh, best friend in terms of the fight algae. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's <clears throat> polished. The rocks clean, like polished. That the rocks look like they're new. And they've been in there for like four years. They don't eat bryopsis though, do they? I think if you handle the root uh, causes for a lot of these things and, and hit stuff early, those things tend to not pop up. So usually when you have like a, a big tuft of hair algae and stuff, that's kind of too late for anything to handle. But if you can get it really down to like a millimeter, a lot of things will handle it. And I think that's kind of like where... Um, having like a, an exceptional cleanup crew does help in that is that uh, just to do the one big maintenance just to kind of like knock everything down uh, will give everything else a chance to just jump on it and control it. Gotcha. Um, random question. What's the thing you love most about what you do there at Tidal Gardens? And then uh, the second follow-up question would be, what's the the thing you hate the most? Mm. <laughs> so that's a good question. Um, so my, my favorite thing is that I had the opportunity to kind of escape my corporate existence and build a company and work environment that I actually wanted to spend time in. Mm. Um, I've, I've had some more prestigious sounding business or prestigious sounding titles in other companies and stuff like that, that supposed to be a good thing. But I was pretty miserable, and I'm really not miserable doing what I do now. And I think a lot of it is I, I'm able just to craft the space that I spend eight, nine, ten hours a day in. Yeah, that's been very, very nice. Um, the thing that I struggle most with is that there's always a push to try to grow and to try to expand what it is you do. Um, and the thing that I kind of, uh, struggle with mentally and professionally is sometimes, um, sometimes bigger and more is just more and, mm. and more in itself that didn't justify anything. So, uh, one, one example that I'll, I'll kind of throw into, cause like my, one, some of my friends, um, they started to do like real estate, like Airbnb type stuff. Right. And they are like bursting at the seams with activity, acquiring new properties and all this stuff. Right. And, and just piling on all this stress. And I was I was kind of like giving them that that sometimes more is just more talk because it, in real estate and in some degree like this industry, too, every now and again, you run into an absolute psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> and an absolute psychopath <laughs> just an absolute whack job and granted 99% of all the interactions are so pleasant 
but just the one whack job <laughs> can kind of just ruin your day. So to speak, you know? And now when you're like growing, you go from one whack job every now and again. Now, now you've got mm. two whack jobs. Yeah. And you, you make more money or possibly, hopefully you make more money. But now you've got two whack jobs <laughs> and you grow a little bit bigger. And now you got three whack jobs, and that's now definitely not worth the effort. No, <laughs> all that, all that, that, that time and stress that you've and capital that you put into growing, you've successfully grown. Congratulations! You have a little bit more money that you didn't really need anyway, and you have three psychopaths now on your mind. <laughs> so that's kind of what I struggle with. So yeah, I, what I'm hearing is that uh, growth, uh, you know, psychopaths can grow in proportion to the uh, you know amount you're growing the business there. So that's that's something to be uh, cautious about. Don't bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you you do a lot of uh, you know you you do retail, but you also do a lot of wholesale, right? Not a lot of wholesale. Not a lot of wholesale. So, uh, we we've got like a good relationship with a wholesaler. And so sometimes they'll buy from us, sometimes we'll buy from them, that sort of thing. Because uh, largely a lot of our stuff is growing faster than we can sell it. I mean, not like Amazeballs Ghanis. Those can take their own sweet time. Or Glitter Bomb Ghanis, they take a little bit of time. <clears throat> but a huge amount of our offering is like so some of the stuff grows too big to sell. And so occasionally we just need to like do uh, some kind of like wholesale ish deals to get rid of that stuff just to, to free up space. Yeah. Um, very occasionally we'll do some work with public aquariums and they'll take larger pieces and stuff like that. But the, they're Those are like one off sort of things. Whereas most of our stuff is retail online retail. Gotcha. So, um, you mentioned uh, Ghani's amazing balls and 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 what have you. <clears throat> you do a great job, then. You guys do a great job in terms of putting out videos on uh, coral care, in terms of tips, in, in terms of feeding light, uh, you know, keeping certain parameters, what have you. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about that a little bit. You know, in terms of Ghani's and Alviapora, what would you say? You know, in terms of just top line advice to folks out there for care for those types of uh, you know corals. What uh, what should people be considering? Should should they be um, you know adding special food for that sort of thing or? So I try to just keep stuff like super super simple. Where um, going back to just the water chemistry, just making sure that your water chemistry is like super stable. And if you decide to do like the ICP thing, um, again, like don't slavishly go after certain numbers, but make sure that you're not bottoming something out. Because generally speaking, if the coral isn't getting actively um, attacked by something or um, isn't completely deficient in something, it'll, it's going to do pretty good. It's like the, whether it gets fed or not, probably won't make that much difference to be perfectly honest. Uh, the stuff that really moves the needle, it's going to be like there's a coral predator where it be like a fish or a snail or something messing with it. Uh, it, it could be something even microscopic. Um, there's like, there, there's, if you, if you look at corals under a microscope, you see like an entire world of stuff <clears throat> and it's really hard to differentiate. Like, is this good guy, bad guy, right? Yeah, is this normal coral biome or is this something that's causing yeah. a problem? Well, if a coral is 
like retracted for a long enough period of time, I'm going to go ahead and assume it's not great. So at that point is when I start to do like the potassium chloride, put, uh, like reef primer-esque dips. Yeah. It's like the most gentle, it's, it's, it, it affects the most number of things. And usually I can get uh, like struggling colonies to perk back up, even though like my, my normal human eyes that are getting worse every day <laughs> would never pick up the problem. Like this is like microscope level stuff. Uh, but just doing that prophylactic dip like really, really helps. And once they bounce back, it's uh, th then you know that like, okay, anytime that I see that type of retraction, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit it again. What, uh, what do you guys do in terms of bringing new stuff in, like quarantining and, you know, making sure you don't bring any bad stuff in? It's tough. I mean, there's just so much that potentially can come in. Yeah, we, we, we again, we, we try to dip in, um, in reef primer. We hold stuff for quite a long period of time before they go into our farming systems. Uh, there's, and we use quarantine as a, as, as a very helpful tool, but like realistically, a lot of the, the common persistent pests are likely to make it through. So, um, you know, we have to have things in place to deal with like Aptasia as it, as it comes and goes. We have to have uh, things in place for, you know, controlling vermitted snails. Um, we are hyper aggressive on any kind of like coral predator or a coral pest like that's actually you know eating coral. So if we find those types of things, we immediately kick those out and have to go through like a specific treatment. And every now and again, we do whole tank treatments um, on an entire system. So that can be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, so right now we're doing interceptor on an entire, I think, I think right now like 3,500 gallons is getting interceptor right now. Yeah. And the worst part is cat, trying to catch all the cleaner shrimp yeah. to try to not, not kill them, yeah. catch all the, um, all the hermit crabs and whatnot and emerald crabs. It, it's, that's like a, that's a process and we're not always successful at saving everything. Uh, but it, it, it's a nice exercise to do because it, it really polishes up the, the, the systems nicely. And we kind of just have have a have it on the schedule, like uh, pretty much every like six months or so. We try to do that. Uh, and if you guys have ever like done the math on how much interceptor that takes, <laughs> it's thousands of dollars. In <laughs> and it's three, three treatments, right? You're doing three treatments. Yeah. 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 And oh, by the way, we get to pay 50% extra for our intercept. Why is that? We actually do it through a vet oh. for the stated purpose of saltwater aquarium. So it's like on the books. Legit. Legit. And you pay extra for that. Oh, you do. So <laughs> you, you can get a, um, I talked about this with uh, one of my prior guests. I can't recall who it was, but, um, yeah, I mean, pretty much it's, it can be difficult to get interceptor unless you're getting, a, uh, a, a vet that is, um, you know, uh, sympathetic to your cause. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which, so for, for home hobbyists, that may or may not be terribly difficult because a lot of times, um, because there are off-label uses for a lot of medications mm. and they're, they're mostly comfortable with these sorts of things. Typically, what they would probably do is just add it to, like, your cat's account. Hmm. It's not a big deal. Like a little pack of interceptor. That's oh, it's 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 Penny's interceptor, right? Yeah. 
but I need cases of Interceptor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so that, the, the, the that, that can be a red flag to uh, the authorities there then, right? Yeah, like the FDA <laughs> might have a problem with that, right? So to, to have it like on the books, like this is this is what it's for. They make a site visit. They charge for the site visit. Really? They make a site visit? Yeah, they wow. make a site visit. Uh, you couldn't just, like, just get a whole boatload from like Canada or something? Uh, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I'm sure you could. I've had, but, but I've had again, luck doing that. Uh, funny you mention that. I, I actually get so my, one of my cats is asthmatic, and I get her Flovent from New Zealand because it's one fifth the price of CVS. But that's a cat. I can't get a case of Flovent. That's going to be yeah arousing suspicion. Yeah. So yeah. So just for for peace of mind that I'm not going to likely run into issues with regulators of like my trafficking levels of interceptor <laughs> that I just purchased. You're doing um, it on we, the up and up. Yeah. We, we pay about 50% extra for that privilege. Wow. Okay. Well, it's worth and it though. I think so. And the thing is like interceptor, I, I, I love this stuff. It's so good at what it does. It just zaps the heck out of everything. Everything meaning a crustacean. Right. Do you guys do like just uh, blanket like every twice a year intercept uh, your systems? Yeah, I try to because a lot of the stuff that we're trying to kill isn't really even pests. It's like stuff like amphipods. Oh, you know how I was going on that tirade about uh, about how much I love Astrina starfish? I hate amphipods, which everybody loves as a part <laughs> of their little microbial cleanup crew. Those are disgusting little carnivores that eat all kinds of stuff. <laughs> like so for example they eat the eggs of bergia nudibranchs Ooh. so if you have if you have amphipods and you're having trouble getting your bergias off the ground it's because of the amphipods they're eating your eggs and they're also probably eating your baby nudibranchs that's a good inside tip there or a yeah. tidbit so they get they, they get intercepted um chris aci my vet makes a visit on occasions and yes it's not cheap to treat eighteen thousand gallons every six months Ooh. Polar Reef, I understand. Hey, Andrew, uh, lots of filler in pills. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. The um, Yeah, you know, I didn't get Interceptor from Canada. I got something else. I can't remember the name of what it was, but it's like a, it's a chewable. It was a chewable uh, tablet. So, um, but it had, it, it, it had the ingredient. What, what's the ingredient in Interceptor again? I can't recall off the top of my head. It, it's like millisieve oxy or right. something. Yeah. something. So whatever these chewables, I, I think I still have some of these chewables, but uh, it's the same thing. So um, so you just have to be careful that you're, that you're getting Interceptor and not Interceptor Plus. Right. Because Interceptor Plus has Prazipro. Right. Lots of it. Yeah. And so, because I mean, people use Prazi to like, you know, for, for fish medication and stuff like that during like fish quarantine. But the, the amount that's in Interceptor Plus is way high from what I recall. So you don't want that. You just want regular Interceptor. Um, <clears throat> be the Found says, uh, Be the Found, not a drain, says uh, Tidal. Tidal Gardens also doesn't bring hardly anything in. And, and you kind of um, mentioned that before, Than uh, Have you ever gotten to the point like where things are good, things are healthy? You don't have any major pests. You're like, I don't want to bring anything else in. 
I'm always like that. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we do need to occasionally replenish. Um, we need to replenish things that don't propagate, you know, like the trachees and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, we do need to replenish our cleanup crew because we sell the cleanup crew <laughs> also. So sometimes it's like, why are we having algae problems? Oh, right, because we sold all the snails that's in this <laughs> tank. This 300-gallon, like one of, one of our little... Uh, corals uh coral breeding tanks it's a 300 gallon tank it's got one snail in it and we have hair algae oh go figure right mm. and, and and sometimes yeah snails die but oftentimes like we're selling like packs of snails and so we have to we have to like re-up on those and guys most of your pests are probably going to come in on your cleanup crew <laughs> yeah we talked about that um you know i had bobby miller from Hubblefish on and and you know he he said that um you know fish pathogens can come on in on uh, snail shells and I was like okay well that explains some stuff because I lost a whole bunch of fish um, at one point when I, I didn't even bring a fish in for like six to twelve months I was like how is that possible he's like yeah you probably brought it in the uh, the pathogen on a um, snail shell yeah and also snails um, they, they retain water for like a long time from their original wherever the heck they came from so yeah and also like little little planaria flatworms are on, are on every yeah. Yeah. of snails. And those are a pain and, in the ass. Eh, I mean, at least they're not like a, a coral predator. Right, but, right. You know, they're just going to like hang out on your glass and right. stuff. Right, yeah. Um, I could find, you know, they, it's, um, there was one flatworm I had, I can't remember the name of it, that um, was all, my, all of my Ghanis and, and Alvia Pora, and they just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And I tried um, a couple of dips. It might have been... Um, Revive is that that that's a dip I think uh, or yeah. Coral RX Coral RX is a is a dip and you know what knocked mm -hmm. them completely out was um, potassium chloride potassium chloride I, yeah, I dipped uh, I dipped whole Ghani and Alveopora colonies in KCL and that totally annihilated them and they did not come back yeah that's my favorite dip yeah and it's cheap yeah I I. Uh... So, so Polyp Lab is a sponsor of Tidal Gardens, so <laughs> we, we we like to use that product. <laughs> but no, potassium chloride is great. Yeah, it's like it's 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 very gentle, which is like my favorite part about it. It's it's, uh, like, it, it's good to have, it's good to have a lot of um, you know uh, tools in the, uh, the the tool belt, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because because we do also um, we have harsher dips for certain things, like like certain um, nudibranchs, for example. Like, if we're going to be taking the, the time to do this dip, we might as well be pretty darn sure we're actually going to be killing nudibranx, whereas it takes a little bit extra with the potassium chloride-based dips. Polo1126, thank you so much for that super chat. Great discussion as always. Glad I could catch some uh, the, this one live. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, uh, coral that uh, you find to be kind of like your, uh, you know, most difficult thing to keep alive. What it, what what uh, is the most challenging type of coral for you um, mm. in tidal gardens? That um, Astemusa wellsi. Hmm. That, that that answer came out way too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is about Blastemusa wellsi. They hate it here right now. <laughs> uh, like Blastemusa mulletti, fine, fine, no problem. But our wellsies, like something, something is bothering them. Something. And long-term um, farming of those corals specifically has been a challenge. Uh, and it, it's not even a, oh, there, there's a pest bothering them. Like, no, they've been dipped quite a lot. They went through full quarantine. 
nothing really observable. It's almost as if um, whatever's growing around them, uh, just with like the coralline or whatever, like not an official pest sort of thing is like growing there, is like restricting their growth or something. And their, their growth stops, they start to look weird, and then slowly they just kind of go away. So that would be the number one uh, most problematic thing for us to farm long term. Yeah, Amanda Meckley's uh, concurring. They're hard uh, to farm for us too. Yeah, yeah. it's a bummer because that, that used to be one of my favorite corals, Blastomusa. Yeah, what happened? I mean, that, that kind of happens with corals, right? They, they kind of, certain types of corals go in and out in terms of hardiness, right? I mean, Ganiapora and Alviapora used to be like almost impossible to keep, and now they're like one of the easiest corals to keep. Um, I, I wonder why that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's just specimen. So I know that uh, for the, you know, my, like my formative years in the hobby, right? Everything was, was Indonesia. And the, uh, the types of Ganiapora that were coming in were these like the, the big, fat, polyped, uh, green Ganiapora, right? Well, there's all these different species of Ganiapora. And uh, I think we were just, for years, just importing the really fragile ones. Yeah. And so they got this terrible reputation of dying in like three to six months. And and now uh, I think most of like the really good ones I think are coming from like Australia, and they tend to be much more hardy. I, I I'm probably speaking out of class just because I don't actually import anything, but um, it seems like a lot of like the super really nice colorful ones typically I think are Australian, and or the ones that are getting brought in from Indonesia are a lot more um, selective for those like for those characteristics and they seem to be really hardy because gotcha. we've got quite a collection of Ghani now uh andrew sandler says then is best at the glitter bomb Ghani. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah there's a, there's a long long uh long line waiting for uh for a frag of those they're very popular yes they are yes they are um, I think I ask you this question all the time at the end of the uh, live streams when I have you on, Than. But what's the uh, what's the the future hold for uh, Tidal Gardens? Like five years down the road, what what are you envisioning? Any uh, any uh, long range plans at this point in time, or just a bunch of thoughts in your head? Um, so I'll I'll give uh, like the, the the much more realistic answer, and then the really goofy answer. <laughs> so in the, in the near term. I just want to settle down and do less. We've mm, been there. In, you go. We've been in extreme uh, production and extreme like project mode for four years now, moving heaven and earth to add on like really ambitious stuff to this coral farm. And um, my latest big purchase was was these uh, protein skimmers from MRC, and. <laughs> I've been telling people, it's like, I think this is the last big project of the year. And they're like, Dan, it's February. There's no way that you're not going to spend a heap of money on something. And I'm like, I really don't want to spend a heap of money on anything. I just want to sit here and do nothing. That would be a, a fantastic victory for me, right? The goofy answer is, I want a robot warehouse. And I'm actually attending a trade show in Atlanta called Modex. And it's right next to the Georgia Aquarium. So I can hop over to the Georgia Aquarium, take a look, and then talk to uh, robot warehouse and automation people. <laughs> because 
one thing that I would love to do is just to have like a warehouse space where all the all the goods are organized and whenever you want something you just dial it up and robots bring it to your station so hold on, hold on. the robots gonna be picking out coral and packing coral is that what's gonna oh, happen no, the dry goods dry, dry goods. goods okay yeah it'll be like a dry goods thing just so so i could just like put all of my test kits and stuff like that into these totes it gets automatically put into a warehouse and whenever i need something it just call it right back up that's what i want because right now we just have you know it, t- it takes like a lot of storage to run a coral farm just in stuff. Yeah. And I just have that better organized. Have you already outgrown the space? It's it's more or less full. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to build an I'd have to build a new building to do anything <laughs> extra. And you, you probably don't want to do that at this point. Yeah, that would go against my not spending any more money. For <laughs> yeah. But what, what about the five year plan though, Than? That that, that potentially's gotta be thoughts crossing your mind, right? Another building? Uh possibly. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, you know, that's uh, that's in maybe next year's budget, right? It'll be it'll be fun when that time comes, but right now would not be fun for me. No. Well, maybe you have to kind of like uh, reconfigure the uh, the uh, um, greenhouse. I'd love to. So the problem with the greenhouse is that it literally grows more coral than I can even physically move to clear space to do a project. Like I would love to rebuild the tanks in there. I can't do it because there is an there is an unmovable amount of coral. Um, we have uh, we have like big buyers come in and literally fill trucks, and nothing seems to have left. <laughs> it's still full. It's still full. Like not, we c- couldn't even tell what what's gone. So uh, getting back to what we we're talking about before in terms of your uh, robot thing, uh, Todd from Champion Lighting Supply aims. I'm not sure. Who, what what Ames is is working on robots for coral restoration. Oh, neat! Interesting. I'd like to see how that works. How does a how does a robot get wet? But I guess that I guess they got ro- underwater robots, right? Yeah, titanium. I mean that that's going to be like real pricey. But I suppose like if everything's you know titanium, it, it will not rust. Um, be the fountain, not a drain. It's it's full. Um, unless he wanted tanks closer to each other, and I don't think he does. Yeah, so no. you're, you you can't squeeze anything closer, tighter together. It sounds like you're uh, pretty much... No, because we, we prioritize like actual work and walking space and stuff like that. What about stacking? And absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, like I, I've, got, I've gone on, on several rants about that, but like um, the double-decker thing does not work out for us <laughs> at all. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go there, but uh, it's been done. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. We don't need more coral. Like that's you're good. We, we have space for everything else but coral. Yeah. Um, all right, then I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap it up. What um, any anything you want to uh, plug that's coming up? Um, so, being like the worst YouTuber ever that doesn't actually make very many videos. Mm. Sorry, guys. Uh, we do plan to get back on that horse, and um, I'm having some more guests come over to shoot podcast stuff. We're gonna do some building updates. So actually, in a couple of days, like so, Ryan from Bulk Resupply will be coming and hanging out, and so we'll have some some fun making videos with him. And when's your next live sale on YouTube? Uh, it was this past weekend. This past so weekend, be- you got you got yeah. another uh, another few weeks for that one. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, listen, Than, thank you, man, so much for uh, coming on and and spending some time with us tonight. Really uh, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
So that's going to do it for this show tonight, folks. I want to uh, thank Than again for being on the live stream. I also want to thank both Bulk Reefs and Planet Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the program and also all you folks out there tuning in and watching. Also, a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. I also want to let you know that all episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef Bum live stream, um, not next week. I'm going to be skiing in Utah, so I'm skipping next week. And um, it'll be next uh, Tuesday, February, not next Tuesday. It'll be Tuesday, February 20th, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My guest will be Rich Ross, and we're going to be talking about coral spawning. So, uh, yeah, you can check out the full upcoming schedule of guests on reefbum.com under the YouTube section. So until next time, be safe and be well. Later.